A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, it's a it's a weird one. This week, you have to have read Mistborn Era 1, and you should probably be through Bands of Mourning Mistborn Era 2. So if you've been keeping up with the podcast, you're good to go. If not, tread lightly. Definitely have finished Mistborn Era 1. there this is cross and i'm pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers like we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club i totally forgot that you were giving an intro and responded to to your (laughs) comments about how far to be along so you got a double double dose of us in that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very very true so I am a little under the weather at the moment, so I apologize. We're going to try to make sure that we catch and remove all of my coughs. I'm is a little bit sick at the house that I'm at. So, but as you know, of course, today is our first episode covering <laughs> secret history. You know, it's it's really weird. It's like, do we call this a completely different book? Do we separate it? It's kind of a part of the Bands of Mourning in the way that I think about it, but whatever. It's our first and penultimate episode discussing the novella Secret History by Brandon Sanderson, and we're going to chat about parts one through three. Yeah, it. we were trying to figure out if we were going to do this as one or two, and Apparently, the second part gets even denser, but there is so much that goes on, so many implications throughout this entire story that decided to split it up. But page number, it's not that intense. Mm-hmm. Right. This is like, this is, this would be the longest week ever that we would have ever done if we had done the whole thing as one episode. I mean, we've read whole novellas and talked about them in a short pour, so it's not like we couldn't do it, but it does yield something that's a little bit different than what we would typically kind of consider our coverage on things. So I was, we were waffling, I was waffling for a while on which way we were going to go with this, and this just felt like the right way to do it. Yeah, I agree. Your disclaimer about like where to be in this story, I think this first part strictly deals with Era 1. We'll probably make connections to Era 2. But even in the disclaimer in the book itself, it references major spoilers to to Era 1 and then minor spoilers to the Bands of Mourning specifically, Mm -hmm. which I found interesting, as opposed to Era 2 as a whole. Yeah, and I feel like without kind of getting into the back half of this, of which you haven't read anyway, the, the minor spoiler or one of the minor spoilers that it's warning about is in this first half, and it is the fact that Southern Squadrons exist. But it's, you know, that was hinted at beforehand, but it wasn't really, you know, it didn't get more than, like, a single line of dialogue or of text. So this is kind of even more solidifying that, but just a little bit, by giving it more attention. So, you know, that's one of a couple of things. To me, the Era 2 spoilers are actually fairly minor. It's the Era 1 ones that are massive and absolutely... I'm going to hold off on more words there. But yes, so before we before we go too far in here to talk about secret history and kind of the first half and what you think of it, because we're 
I'm ill. We're doing a little bit of a modified episode here. PJ, what are you drinking this morning? So we're both just doing beer as far as alcoholic mm-hmm. drinks go. I've got my typical vase of water, but what I brought to the table is it is a Blackstack double IPA called Doing Numbers. So it's mm. a it's a double IPA with experimental hops. So as opposed to the typical like buy it off the shelf or out of the catalog hop varietals that you see everywhere. This is new strains, new new genetics in the hop varietals. It is much less fruity forward, but it's not like to the point of pine or anything. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a really nice hint of bitterness to it, but it's a lot more spicy and almost vegetal in its fa- flavor profile. There's no like specific vegetable flavors that come through, but that sort of less sweet, a little bit more spicy characteristics. And I'm really, really enjoying it. So, yeah. Nice. I'm, I'm jealous. I am having, I'm, I'm at the whims of my, my parents in Texas here. So I am having a revolver brewing Texas ale blood and honey of which I've had before. And if I remember correctly, I think Bing and I were a little let down by, but I haven't tried it again. So we're going to, we're going to see. We were a little drunk when we were doing this. So, so is it like a I think it wheat? must have been a different it must have been a different revolver brewing because this is actually pretty good. It's wheat and barley, in case you're asking. But I mean the the style. It says Texas ale. It's an ale brewed with blood orange peel, Texas honey, and spice. So probably almost a wit beer. Uh, yeah, I would say so. It's definitely got a lot in common there. It reminds me a lot of, of of a lot of holiday beers and kind of that okay. sort of flavor profile, even though that's not what it's going for. It has that sort of like warming spice to it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's that what makes I kind of get out of it. As not opposed bad. to like my straight favorite, coriander right. that right. you find in wit beers. Yeah. Right. Very similar. And then I also have my Dragon Steel bottle of water because my throat is going to be shot by the end of this, I'm sure. So probably, probably it's already getting there. So before we get into talking about your thoughts on the reading, I did want to bring up kind of two different announcements here to mention a obviously thank you to everyone of whom attended dragon steel live last week that was excellent we were we were happy to have you and if you didn't hear it you can listen to it next week as or rather you should have already listened to it we, we released it last week but we didn't get to say thank you so here's the place to say thank you yeah yeah that was a lot of fun i was really nervous going into it i'm not well versed in public speaking in general. So we, we had a handful of people that came and watched and listened and uh, many of them were listeners of the show, which was great and super fun to meet everyone. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yes, most definitely. The second announcement, it was, it was so much fun. I, my brain is fried and going in all directions already. It's 930 in the morning here, folks, and the sickness might take me before the end of this this call so if you never hear from me again i'm so sorry if you never hear from him again you're welcome (laughs) and we will all (laughs) dance on your grave okay all right good good for you i did want to say that we're also i determined after 
I'm roughly three quarters of the way through the Lost Metal at this point when we're recording this. So I'm sure by the time this comes out, I will be well past done. But I will be recording an episode on my own to discuss the sort of implications, thought processes, and everything else of the Lost Metal and kind of give it a give it a review in things that I would be unable to talk about if I had PJ in the room, if that makes sense to those of you of whom have read it. Um, a little baby can't handle shit. Little baby can't handle shit. You know, no, it's it's like if you haven't read or if you haven't watched some Marvel movies and there's like little hints here and there and it's like, well, pointing it out to you doesn't make any difference. But, you know, it will yeah. to them. Yeah. So that'll be coming out. Can't, I'm not even going to promise a length of like how long that's going to be, but it will be a an episode of some format and length. It'll either be a short pour or on the main feed. We'll have more for you probably next week when I actually record this thing. But yeah, that's that's the game plan. So look out for that as well. Cool. So. Before we talk about the chapters, PJ, in our rough format that we're going with, with for this episode, how do you feel about this week's reading? My mind is open. <laughs> Your mind is open. I feel like I've said that before, but like there, there's mm-hmm. just so many, so many things came into focus and so many questions that I had in the back of my mind were answered just from the actual goings on behind the scenes of the story. Nice to see a lot of the friendly faces that we've gotten to know through arrow one again, I have feelings on the way that Kelsier is portrayed, but I'm sure we'll get into that. And I think you share some of those feelings. I did Um, get drunk in Salt Lake and talk a lot about my feelings about this ahead of time. So yes, I will definitely get into those feelings again. My fault. I provided the booze. It's true. At least at one junction. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had, we had some good whiskey over the course of... I the, brought you the whiskey, yes. You brought the whiskey, yeah. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of really good beers out of Salt Lake, but I got to mm-hmm. finally taste the words and whiskey. Yeah, the Woodenville. Woodenville that you brought, so... You're you're distracting from your thought on the book. Yeah. <laughs> I was transitioning <laughs> okay. from my thought in the book. <laughs> okay, all right, fine. To, to put it into perspective... I have a tough time, and I I said this, and I'm probably going to repeat myself here a couple of times over the course of the episode. I have a tough time with not talking about this whole thing as like an artifact of its own creation, if that makes sense. Like, I, I have a very tough time separating the purpose of this story from the story that it's trying to tell and the story that it intertwines with. So those those three things make it difficult for me to talk about until we're probably done. So I'm going to focus for the most part on plot beats as much as I possibly can and try not to get into kind of the the sort of narrative and the reason and sort of all of those things because there is some sort of, there's a lot more, and this is something that I don't think we would really get into with almost any other author, but there's a lot more that's put on this story than a lot of other stories would ever have placed on them because of this sort of grander cosmological narrative that we're going to be tracking through. So that said, I enjoy the first half of this story. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Okay. So with that, let's get into the chapters and folks, we're going to breaking, we're going to be breaking these down a little bit different. There's, there are beats of course that happen here. I've got kind of a summary in front of me for each of these. I'm not going to run through it kind of traditionally like we would with kind of pauses and phrases, but I uh, give us kind of a, 
a jumping off point and we'll kind of work our way through it and see how it goes from there. So blame the illness. I wasn't able to quite do the notes the way that I wanted to. So here we are. So chapter one picks up in part one. And I, I love the way that all these parts are titled to the part one empire, the part two. Well, and part three spirit kind of gives us direction for where we're at in the story, which I think is important. But I, I love the way that this opens up with us being dropped into Kelsier's perspective moments before his death at the hands of the Lord Ruler and him burning the 11th medal, seeing these visions appear next to him and being like, well, wasn't wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but wasn't as useful as I hoped. Here we are. As Rashik, you know, kind of isn't, is bearing him down. The Lord Ruler slaps him, of course, and kills him. You know, what'd you make of Kelsier's death from the Lord Ruler's perspective? Or from, uh, excuse me, from his perspective. A little bit, a little bit brutal. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and it becomes even more callously brutal when you get the interaction with he and Rashik in the cognitive realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, it gets it gets it adds some layers. There's some layers in this relationship here that the Lord Ruler clearly thought about Kelsier, not necessarily as much, but like a shocking amount by maybe traditional comparison. Mm hmm. Yeah. Which, I mean, he's also the only person to have escaped the pits, so that makes sense that he'd be notable in the Lord of Ruler's eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really interesting, too, when he flares that 11th medal, he sees the vision of Rashik taking the power at the well, changing the world, you know, and all of that. He kind of sees and peers into and between reality while he's being slapped and dying and burning this medal, which is fascinating. Did you have any thoughts there it was brief i felt like mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's a couple of lines so at best there's not there's not a lot to really take from it but but to say that it is such a notable point that that's what would be seen mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i feel like thinking about this and a lot of this is mechanics right a lot of this is reality and things that you haven't heard before things that are explored you know, and again, this doesn't feel spoilery or anything like that, but I this feels like a way for Mistborn fans to get some of the world understanding that Stormlight fans have because of the interaction with realms and whatever else. Not to the same degree or not to the... This exposes a ton of information that otherwise wasn't spoken about to begin with, so I'm not trying to mislead or misplace that anywhere. Anyway, I feel like the reason that he kind of has that vision of the past is likely not only because of the the fact that the 11th medal kind of sees these people as they were, but also the fact that Atium, as we know it and understand it, when Ellen burned it, he saw all of that Atium he did see and projected so far with Duralamin, he saw so far into the future. I have a similar belief with the 11th medal being burned here and seeing into the past a little bit. And that's because naturally the alloy appears to replicate or create images of the past. And so it feels like there's a, a tie there um, to some degree. Yeah. It's yeah, enhanced by death. Yeah. Okay, cool. So death sucks uh, for Kelsier naturally. Uh, and he, he refers to it, I believe as a painful experience uh, <laughs> and ends up in this new realm. And you see some other people like popping in and then popping out. Uh, and is quickly addressed by a god. And god shows up and begins kind of giving a speech, and Kelsier punches god in the face, naturally, 
as he's trying to talk with him. <laughs> I, I'd be remiss if I didn't like stop here and talk about this moment because I know this is a fan favorite moment. What do you think of the the punch? I so this is actually my turn in really disliking the portrayal of Kelsier going forward. Mm, okay, and I know you and I have talked about it a little bit off air. I don't know if it's a shared or universal sort of feeling, but Kelsier in this story feels much less complex and much more one note. And that one note feels like not the real Kelsier as we've come to know him in this story so far. He feels like the embodiment of the facade that he put on. And that doesn't have a ton to do with the punch itself. It's funny. Like, don't get me wrong. It's it's a funny moment. And just the idea of punching a god is hilarious to me. And and does, to a certain extent, match up with what we know about Kelsier and anti-authoritarian views that he he has. And what's what's a bigger authority figure than a god? But it just became cartoonish. That's... Fair, and I don't want to. I'm going to try to steer clear of this meta, the the portrayal conversation a little bit until we're done because I I have some I have okay. some more complete thoughts. But I will say that I acknowledge and see you and definitely agree that it does feel like a different Kelsier. And and I I really appreciate the term you know kind of the way that you put it where it's like it feels like a rendition of him of what his perception is if that makes sense like it feels like this is the way that he's perceived in reality and like it it reduces what was otherwise a complex character to something that is much more a facsimile of of its original self and i i think that could be something that's just distance from the character and coming back and writing him but you can even almost see that line between like his internal monologue when he dies and when he comes into the cognitive realm. Like there's almost something there. But yeah, yeah. Don't I don't want to chat about it too much. But just to put that there, and we'll definitely talk about that more last week. But I I enjoyed the God Punch moment. But I was also like, would you really do like not not like a Kelsier, but like would anyone really do that? And I guess if anyone would, it would probably be Kelsier. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, my thought was like, punch God or pick God's pockets. Like, that was my thought. Like, well, why he kind of does he... that later. Yeah, he does that later. So, like, it makes sense. I, I get it. I get it. But we end up in this mysterious realm, right? And we meet Fuzz, or whom is later addressed as Laris. So we, we have kind of a name to run off of here. But it's preservation, as we kind of know from a little bit later in the story it's the other god that's been here and one that we haven't really met and interacted with so this is an interesting part of the story where this is we we spend a lot of time in era one with ruin but we don't really get to meet preservation we just see the power of preservation in the end and vin kind of running away with it so this is a this we do get a little bit of preservation with ellen don't get me wrong but Mm -hmm. yeah what would you think of preservation himself the nugget man himself (laughs) <laughs> just making the little um, chicken nuggies of alamancy well he is chicken nuggets of alamancy uh, yeah fair point to a certain degree he's dying 
throughout this whole thing. Here, not as much, but you see the very quick progression of his sort of... I don't know what I would have thought of this if I hadn't read the, or hadn't understood that he was... Understanded? What? If I hadn't understood that he was uh, losing most of his constitution just through the act of dying slowly. And there's a lot that goes into that, but you've already read the story, so you get it. But he's very aloof and he's distracted and it's difficult for him to focus. And I, I liked the way that he was portrayed in that way as because I'm assuming all of the readers of this are presumed to have read that. So we we get both the ironic perspective of Kelsier just saying, like, what the fuck is this dude? Like, he's supposed to be a god. And we understand, like, all of his sort of faculties are being slowly drained away from him. And it creates a very sympathetic character mm-hmm. that we get to interact with here. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think Laras is really interesting because he is he is a like dying here's how i think of laras he is a dying whiny librarian but librarian for people's souls if that makes sense like i can imagine him in a library managing things and preserving them and keeping them together it fits well and it matches the character i think incredibly well and him fading is also just sort of sad to see. And like you said, it, it makes us sympathetic for, you know, what's happening here and what's happening to the world at large. It's, it's as though like you're watching half of the world be consumed by the other half. And we, we kind of saw that happen in a more physical sense, but seeing the cognitive realms like degradation through Laris's destruction. I mean, it's, it's great. Yeah. Even if he wasn't actually dying, I think it'd be understandable considering how much is actually going on that he has to actively like be attentive to. Mm -hmm. So him dedicating a part of his being to interacting with Kelsier is a very small portion where he's putting most of his energy and most of his time and, and ability into pushing Vin forward. Mm -hmm. And, we obviously don't see that side of it. We just see Kelsier's interaction with him, but he's just distracted. Yeah. And he's also, it's it's so interesting because he is omnipresent while not omnipotent, of course. And so he's there with everyone as they die. And he tries to make those, as he says, he tries to make those stops with everyone and have this little walk in conversation when they when they pass away. So it's, uh, it's nice you- to kind of... Yeah. Would you call it like pseudo omnipotence? Like it's almost there. Like he's able to be there and selectively hear things and and be part or perceive conversations that are happening even if he's not actively there at the moment. Um it, well, so I I understand that there's probably some middle ground where it's omnipotence wouldn't be the right word because omni implies all right so it would be some prefix but yeah you've effectively hit the hit the heart of it so yeah i don't know what word you would use to technically describe that but i understand pseudo fitting there yeah yeah it's close so, it's close it's not perfect but that's a close right, right. as close as i can get with my current vocabulary 
Yeah, yeah, but he's omnipresent nonetheless. He's always there. He's, you know, variously everywhere, but he can't interact with everything and he can split himself into many pieces to kind of be in as many places at once. Uh, which makes for kind of an interesting argument. But getting back to Kelsier here, of course, interacting with him, we see these other people are flashing in and they're be pulling they're being pulled to the beyond and sort of stretching to this interminable distance before disappearing and vanishing altogether. And as he kind of is able to interrogate Laris, and he lasts longer in this realm because of his direct connection with preservation through being a mistborn, he has this conversation about, well, what is that? And he, Laris goes in and explains a little bit about the realms and the spirit realm and kind of what, what that is. We get a lot more in this later, but he uses this moment to realize that he is actually also going to die and fade into the distance. And so he begins to trick Laris into revealing the location of the well of Ascension and races there since he's trying to keep himself alive and preserve himself. He's the survivor after all. He has to survive. Yeah, he is. He's slippery for sure, Mm -hmm. but I don't, he kind of connected the dots for the well of Ascension for himself. He didn't really get told where they were. He was just having a conversation about the well and then connected the dots to it having had to have been moved and recognize the pooping room and its existence. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and he puts it together there. all of a sudden. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So I, I, there's a certain amount of being tricked on Laris's part. There's a certain amount of just not having the faculties about him to really stop anything in this. Kelsier is obviously a very powerful alamancer. So he's going to stay in this realm for longer than the normal person. And he's kind of integral to the background of what's going on right now. That he like that's very important with Vin and the crew in general. So I think all of those aspects put together, plus his ability to kind of talk himself out of things, makes for a situation where they're not friends, but they're not enemies, and they're they're kind of he he's an intellectual challenge for Laras at this point. Mm-hmm. Is kind of how I took it. Okay, yeah, I I I think that it makes sense. I mean, we're also talking about a depleted man, right? Like you've brought that up a couple of times. There, I imagine a very different Laras earlier. Laris, Laris, yeah, Laris, Laris, whatever. I'm gonna call him Laras at least four more times, but. I imagine a very different Laris before a lot of this happens and takes place as a more whole person. Still, I think probably a skittish person and kind of mousy like he is, but not not to the nth degree. I, I think it's been emphasized over time and sort of his, by his degradation. So he makes it to the well and says Laris to preserve him there as a part of the power and traps him in it just like Ruin is, but he is in fact alive yeah uh i saw him almost like a researcher slash professor that's kind of the vibe i got from him yeah Um, librarian and yeah librarian works but but a a genius that's lost a bit of himself a genius in his later years kind of that that i don't know if it's a trope but 
the characters going and finding this inventor, this genius, or this this pivotal character in a certain topic, and realizing, oh, they've gone crazy, and they're they're not actually going to be that helpful for me, even though they laid the groundwork for something incredible. Yeah, that makes sense. I <clears throat> can't speak more on this topic. So that's fair. Apologies. One sec. Yeah, I, I and I don't mean to like cut you off with that necessarily, but there's there are fun things to explore in this space, but we aren't quite there yet. And I, I think fair. that for some of these things, it's like I can only push you so far in speculating, and I can only say so much without you know tying in other experience through either like words of Brandon that I've read or book context. So it's kind of like a. Some of these things are like, when we get there, we'll get there kind of a thing. So, yeah, if that makes sense. Totally. All right. Let's go into chapter two, man. So, this is a much shorter chapter than the first one. There's there's still a lot that happens as we move throughout these different parts and sections. But, Kelsier examines his prison and tries to break free from it, but of course cannot. He's stuck in this 5x5 five five cube and cannot, 5x5x5 five by five by five space, basically, and cannot make it out. At the other end of the cavern, he sees the glowing beads of metal, those nuggies that we've talked about so often, and kind of makes them out. He also has a curious run-in with Inquisitors dumping the body of their fallen comrade into the well, the one that he had killed. Just kind of picking your thoughts on the first part of this section, what do you think about it? Well, that's something that I think Laris describes as useless right but it is a tradition of theirs it's a ritual of theirs Mm -hmm. so first of all the inquisitors understand what the well is to a certain Mm -hmm. extent and understand that it exists and that it's here and is religiously significant at the very least so that's fun if nothing else that's fun that's something that i hadn't expected I expected it to be strictly a secret that the Lord Ruler held, but it also means that ostensibly none of the Inquisitors have ever broken free from their spiritual bindings, if you will, until Marsh shows up. Fair fair point. I want to add in before you continue a little bit there that the Inquisitors here, I think it shows perhaps that the Lord Ruler is very good at restricting information, but it also it adds something to the question for me of does the Lord ruler also not fully understand how this works? And may he had, may he have like thought that throwing the, the alimantic spike or not the hemorrhagic spikes back in could be something, or is he contributing in some way to preservation? I think it poses some fun questions, but there's absolutely zero answers. Or are they drawn there because that's where ruin is? Yeah. Did you say that? No, I didn't say that, but I agree. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it would have been, oh man, the hemallergic spike in the well doesn't, like there's a negative aspect there. There, There is pain that goes into it and they're obviously dead already, but did any of the inquisitors go into the well with them or did they like yeet them off the side? As, 
I think they yeeted him off the side. No one, no one went into the well. But they did pull the spikes from him and then preserve uh, them in blood, which was an important point here because we do know that yeah. the well does push against it. Which is another thing that's added here is that we find out that hemolurgy and hemological spikes can be preserved in blood. <sighs> that's some which cool means, shit. Which means that you could have like an ancient spike in theory that was just constantly mm-hmm. kept as powerful as could as it could be with blood. Yeah, so, or you can. That's interesting. Hold, you could hypothetically have a bunch of spikes that you can hot swap. Yeah, and have a little carrying right. case, which is what Bleeder was doing, right? I mean, that's if we if we think back to shadows. Yeah. Was there anything mentioned about vials of blood? No, no. But she was hot swapping spikes and metal mines. So right. There's also the added question of, she's a chondra, right? How could she do any of that? But that's a that's a side yep. question. Yep, that's a that's a question for Era Two specifically. So, yeah, there's there's some there's some components here for sure that get really interesting and start to extend that out. But I think the most fun part of this, of course, is that there are two different reveals that or two different bits that kind of happen here that I think are great. One is Laris revealing that he did create a signal to the followers and that he did have a plan. He was like, it's genius. I've made this plan and it will it's foolproof and everyone will figure it out and it's not going to be an issue. They're going to know that there are 16 elementic metals and that's going to be that's going to be the hint and he's like snapping for himself like he's at a fucking poetry thing and Kelsier's mm-hmm. like nah dude there's 10 like what <laughs> and it's like ah fuck the lord ruler fucked that up which is just this great great moment and reveal that like Laris did plan to like create something that could fight AT and and really kind of put this into perspective also we get the name AT firmly here which is cool as well. we do yeah. yeah um and I mean that was the number 16 was already significant Mm-hmm. But there's just a stopgap of information. And yeah. whether or not that is something that was removed by Ruin, like if they had intended to share the number six, like the, the information about the 16 in general, because you would feel like it would have to be the case if he wants 16 to be significant. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, then there's the hidden metals and makes problems, certainly. Yeah, it does. And you know what? It's uh, it's fun. There, there are moments of this that I love. And this is one of those things where it's like that is just crunchy enough where it's it's kind of a fun, a fun little add to the story. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the hard things. This is a hard thing with prequels in general. Imagine choosing to write something that happens parallel to your story in a different dimension basically it's almost yeah. it's reminiscent of of ender's shadow in that respect yes not the same except- and there, there's there's a there's a layer of obfuscation with the different mm-hmm. dimension but right right i, think, I can't I think, think of other parallel layer, stories off the top of my head right because this guy's dead you know what i mean like this is that's like it's it's a step beyond a lot of those like 
alternate POV stories. You know, like Twilight has Midnight Sun, which is from Edward's perspective. And as you mentioned, Ender's Shadow is kind of my other one. This is almost wholly something different to me. Like, it, it steps beyond that a little bit. But it is the closest comparison, I would agree with you, is, is something that is an alternate POV of the same story. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so then the other interesting part happens. Kelsier is able to watch Vin kill the Lord Ruler, and the Lord Ruler shows up in the cavern, now appearing in the Cognitive Realm, now showing the Lord Ruler in the Cognitive Realm. <laughs> but he you know, tells Kelsier that he was only a pawn, letting Rune destroy the world. What do you make of this conversation that happens between the Lord Ruler and Kelsier in sort of their, their different places, preservation's anger over Kelsier setting up this revolution to begin with? that persists throughout this whole week. What what do you make? I didn't quite get the severity that I would have expected from this Mm -hmm. in the moment. It almost felt like two hockey players kind of chatting over the walls of the penalty boxes. Mm. Like they've just kind of resigning themselves to the fact that they've been taken out of this, out of the game a little bit. And there, there's some bitterness to it, and there's some just kind of like, bah, blah, 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 to it. But there's not a lot of really super meaningful conversation. I, I would some. agree. I think there's most of the meaningful, meaningful information. But yeah, most of the meaningful conversation happens between preservation and Kelsier in that regard. Where Mm -hmm. he's really kind of painting it on, layering it on thick. Like, why'd you kill the guy who was going to be, like, holding up the world? He held up the world. He preserved it. He kept it. You're not going to, like, and then he interrogates, like, you're not going to blame him for all the wrongs that he's done and all the enslavement. It's like, yeah, it's bad, but, like, people are still alive. Rune wants to just kill people in general. So it it gets into kind of a, a good specifically with Laris, it gets into a good philosophical conversation about the Lord Ruler and kind of things that we had discussed previously, as is. Um, and about the gods themselves and what their uh-huh. intentions are and what their their driving motivations are. And it's not the individuals, mm-hmm. which we've yeah. kind of speculated on, especially when talking about the Lord Ruler and his motivations. I would um, just not even grammatically pick apart the thing that you said, but you said intention. I would say it's their intent and that's an important delineation. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. Is it also Um, their intention? Sure. But that's not an important word. Bingo. (laughs) 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 You had already drawn this connection. I I think it was a little bit off air. Or actually, I think it was even back in Elantris, you had drawn the connection with Yars Arcanum, and you were like, and then we started to talk about Mistborn and the abilities, and, you know, intent is very important with anything. I mean, truly, like, intent is everything. But with these magic systems, intent is incredibly baked in to the whole idea. And it's one of those things that you wouldn't consider very important because it's like, oh, I I push coin, coin push, coin go. But it's like the intent is to push from your body to the coin using allomancy, and that that is intent in a direction, aimed, focused. So it's not the command, but it is the intent. So right. yeah, I'm, I'm still wrestling with that one. But I didn't realize I did how important Elantris's Ars Arcanum was until we reread it, and then I was like, holy shit, this actually defines just about everything was blown away yeah it's pretty cool yeah so 
All right. <clears throat> With that, I really enjoy the moment in which the Lord Ruler is like, I'm not going to hop into the well. He just kind of flirts with it for just a second, like reminding himself of that power that he held at one point and then chooses to go into the beyond. It, it, I'm not I'm not anywhere near a Lord Ruler apologist or anything like that because I don't believe, in the end, I believe good intentions but bad implementation, of course. But for a person of whom had no nobility or idea what he was walking into i have a tough time faulting the lord ruler for what he tried to achieve to keep the world together for a time yeah I, the when and you're this, dealing this extends with, that it does it, it truly does and when you're dealing with trying to hold an entity at bay that will bring the end of the world it's hard to make any concessions to that for the sake of the individuals that you're ruling over. Mm-hmm. Because right. slipping up fucks everybody. Yeah. It's it's nuclear apocalypse, right? It's like, if I mess up, everyone dies. So I make sure that there is no way that I can mess up. And unfortunately, that means that some people don't get what they deserve. And that's... it's Man, it sucks. It's, it's, a, it's a shitty place to be in to begin with, which is why, you know, you have a tough time with the Lord Ruler. But also you have to condemn those behaviors and actions anyway. So, oh, oh, man. What a, what a story. A story. This, this final empire is. Okay, let's, I, anything else to say on, on this? Before we move into part two? No, I don't think so. Okay. All right, cool. We go into part two well. We start with chapter one, and Kelsier is in his prison for a long time. He's just bored. He doesn't have any way of passing the time. He finds different moments he can, like, unravel his... He, like, tries to draw and write things to, like, make a plan because he's a planner. He uses, you know, chalkboards before in the in the first book to, like, write out all these elaborate plans. He tries, like, unraveling his clothes, and they ravel themselves back together into their original form before he had died and and these different things i i guess i want to ask like what do you think here's a good place to talk about it but what do you think of the cognitive realm as a place and how it kind of functions and i feel like this is where we start to get some of that grounding what do you think i mean so so this is this is making me almost back backpedal a little bit Mm -hmm. on my conversation about the the presentation of Kelsier that we get through throughout this entire story. And I would think that the cognitive realm is a representation of yourself as you perceive yourself. And if he Mm. has been so dedicated to putting forward this sense of himself Mm -hmm. that he believed it, then it makes sense that there's not a lot of layers to him and there's not a facade and he just is what he believes himself to be here. Like, do you get what I'm saying? Am I, am I making sense? Yeah, no, I, I totally do. Uh, I don't like that. I, I wish it was more like, this is who you truly are, but maybe what you believe yourself to be is truly who you are. Or maybe that's the representation of yourself in the cognitive realm, you know? Like, that's that's what that yields, right? And that's what's so interesting about these separation of realms, right? Is that, as it's explained just a little bit later, 
the physical in in this chapter, the physical realm is this is the kind of manifestation of all of these things tying together. Where in the and your your body, I, I guess. I, okay, let's let's get into this. We'll talk about Hoyt, and we can use Hoyt as the the lens. I don't want to get into this a little bit too early, but I, okay. I agree with you. I think that it is fascinating. And when you are reduced to only one maybe aspect or when you lose an aspect of yourself potentially in the way that his physical form died it complicates things in a in a big way yeah death is messy yeah death is is messy does dmt exist on scodreal one assumes that when kelsier (laughs) died and he saw those visions of himself it was not only the 11th metal that he was burning at the time that he saw the passive rashik but that also it was it was DMT, yeah. I, I think yeah. so. I think okay. it had to be both. Cool. I'm going to pause it now that DMT is a metal, and it's burnable. Perfect. <laughs> Imagine just if a, there were just, just recreational metals here. In all honesty, I'm shocked that there isn't, like, a, you know, that there isn't something to that degree. Because what would make a system better than, like, addiction to it? Right, like I, I understand the the idea of of uh, like pewter dragging and in, in sort of the way that you can become addicted or savantism and the addiction there. But what if there was just like, what if you were just naturally addicted to it because of what it gave you? You know what I mean? We never explore that. Maybe that comes into focus in like era three, when yeah. when more unsealed metal mines and maybe unsealed alimantic abilities become prevalent. Yeah. I, I it's it's something that I am simultaneously excited to explore and I'm leery that we'll ever do it because I, I think that it is something that is more difficult for Sanderson to write about because Yeah, we've seen his ability to write drunk people. I I can't imagine him yeah. writing druggies. Well, he he does he does a good job he does a good job researching and talking to people and we we talked about this at Dragon Steel and afterwards but like lived experience often trumps related experience and so I've read from fantasy authors that were addicts and you know supposed and you can you feel it on the page in a very real way that I I don't know that Brandon would ever be able to pull out of someone else's experience and and put on not that I don't have confidence that he could I just don't know that he would make that integral but man that's a that's a curiosity for me inside of this world yeah yeah for sure cool so what were we talking about oh hoyd we were gonna talk about hoyd okay so we get some interesting terms here pj from from our boy hoyd that lets us lets us kind of explore this uh, this universe a little bit more and i called him our boy but he doesn't need to be our boy for the record i I just said that but hoyd shows up and it's the first time that we've really met hoyd as hoyd if that checks out he's more than a beggar he's more than playing a part in some story he's trying to make his way through this well of which is defined as a perpendicularity. Fuck, go. I don't know. Man, I know there's more to it. I know I should understand, but the only thing I can really draw on is the epilogue of Elantris where he dives into the pool and disappears. So he does specifically during this part as well blame Kelsier for the destruction of the other perpendicularity, which is the Pits of Hathson, of which... You did nail. 
but it's not quite a pool. I don't know what to make yeah. of that. I sure. like I, I know I know that's there and I like that confused me. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Or rather I it, I I couldn't key into but it because got a I'm, term. I'm just missing you a, stuff. You got a thing. You got a thing. We got a thing. You don't have to call them wells anymore. Yes, okay. But perpendicularity. Mm-hmm. It evokes imagery for me. Mm-hmm. On a dimensional scale, but that's mostly because I deal with like building 3D models in my day job, and I don't think that's what it's talking about. And I, I'd, I'd like to understand where that term's come, where that term come from, ah, where that term comes from in this context, and why perpendicularity. Well, we kind of. We kind of get that. Like, we kind of get a little bit, right? Because obviously he needs it to go from the cognitive realm to the physical realm. And he then, at the end of this, you know, dives through basically the well and is able to transition and then grabs one of the beads of lyrasium that's on the ground, the the nuggies as they were, and makes away with it. But, you know, so we kind of have some understanding. But, But why the term perpendicularity? I mean, doesn't it seem like it's an intersection between realities with what I just said? Then call it an intersection. Like, perpendicularity is something much more specific than that. Okay. I understand. And you, you're you limited on exposition at the moment, so I'm not going to go too hard on this. But I do, mm-hmm. at the very least, want to say it's like capital P, perpendicularity, and... Entering an intersection is not nearly as good sounding as entering or passing through a perpendicularity. You know what I mean? And I'm just okay. using that as a surface argument, and I'm not going to talk about the rest. <laughs> like, okay, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's fine. So, yeah, I we're, we are approaching a point where I have to parse my words a lot more carefully <laughs> as you start to know these things. And so I have to think much harder about what you're exposed to and what you're not. My level of knowledge is becoming dangerous because it technically overlaps things that i don't actually know yes exactly we're starting to hit things that are and and here's the thing once you know enough it's all fair game and but like you're not gonna know enough until like book two of stormlight to be really dangerous probably i i don't even know that i don't even know that for sure but yeah we're mm-hmm. getting there warbreakers got some good shit in it too so that's coming soon Fair. All right. I also got my Warbreaker uh, mass-produced <laughs> softcover <laughs> signed by Brandon. PJ got a fucking mass paperback signed by Brandon, which is <laughs> hilarious. And I did recommend it. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't recommend it. I did say that, like, if you want to talk about rarity of things, that is going to be the most rare thing. Is more signed paperbacks than anything else. I still recommend you buy a different copy so you don't like bust that spine and ruin it. But yeah, I'm, I'm a proponent of reading collector's editions. However, a paperback is a little bit different because you you can like materially degrade it the moment that you read it. I've never seen paperbacks that blow out like <laughs> these ones do, <laughs> like like the Tor Sanderson paperbacks. Yeah, yeah, they come in they come in box sets. Like the Mistborn trilogy came in a box set and it's like an inch longer than the box that it came in now. 
Yeah, it does not fit. It doesn't. Um, I threw like, my box away. Barely two of them fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely How? flares. I. Yeah. Great. Great question. All right. We have a lot more to get through here. So, <laughs> Hoyd. Of course, as we've been talking about, we, we talked a lot about the other stuff relating to the realms and the perpendicularities and some of the information that we get. Obviously, this is also the first time that we really get to interact and talk with Hoyd as Hoyd said that earlier. They get into kind of an argument fight, a, a battle of wits, if you will. And uh, Kelsier kind of like dodges his way out of it because he realizes what Hoyd's actually doing, which is trying to distract him. Hoyd's on top of floating on top of a body. There, there's a lot of shit here relating to Hoyd's appearance. I just want to I want to pick your brain specifically aiming at Hoyd. So he is explicitly referred to as a world hopper. Yes. It's the, I think it's the first time we've actually heard that I think term. it is. It, you, it's you either the up. first or It exists second. in one of the main books. It, it might exist in one of the Era 2 books, but I... I didn't, I didn't get this term from nowhere. <laughs> like, I, and I oh, know, oh, oh. It was from Elantris. I'm pretty sure it was from the epilogue of Elantris. Yeah. Um, yep, 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 yep. I'm almost positive. Yeah. Okay. So, but world hopping seems to go beyond just jumping from physical realm to physical realm. It, it allows for interacting with this cognitive and I would assume actual realm as well. Mm-hmm. So this is somehow an imbued power, but it's not a shard. It's not godliness. So that throws out my theory on him being Trell, but something entirely different and just to pretty actually add this here, not in any of the era two books, not in any of the era one books must've been a laundress. Okay. I'm convinced. I don't have that one digitally, so I can't search it, but fair. Yeah. So it's not godliness is what you're trying to get, get at here. Pick at. Yeah, it's something either parallel to or separate from holding a shard. But it's clearly elevated beyond, like, it's not something that can be learned by a general person. Like, it is a, there. there's a certain amount of immor- immortality associated with it, considering we've in, interacted with Hoyd on several different centuries He's kind of a trickster. He's kind of a, a fast-talking, smooth-walking son of a bitch. <laughs> Especially in this perspective, finally. We see him as yeah. the man that he is. Yeah, exactly. White hair, right? Yep. Yep. I'm really curious to try to match up. I'm, I'm still convinced that he has to have some sort of ability to mask his appearance in some way if it's not shape-shifting he's just good at disguises i don't know perhaps we will we will find out more maybe eventually who knows who knows especially you know hoid the coachman hoid the beggar hoid the hoid the everything hoid the man on the edge of the well hoid the informant mm-hmm so after an exchange of insults as mentioned before we see hoid managed to beat up Kelsier and he says something kind of odd in that moment which is that he was able to fight him because he wasn't physically hurting him 
and was able to kind of fight back, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot to say there, but it's it's just like a, a note that's like, hmm, because you aren't alive, I can hurt you, but I'm not really hurting you. You're imagining your own pain. Um, right. That was interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Hoyd goes to the center of the pool and transitions to the physical realm. He picks up one of those beads that we, the nuggies, of course, and, and tells him, you know, he, he basically makes off in the other direction, begins wandering away. Uh, Laris shows up at that moment and Kelsier explains what happened, that he fought this drifter. He refers to Hoyd at that point as Sephandrius. He lectures Kelsier on the three realms that we've kind of discussed throughout this entire section, physical, cognitive, and spiritual. And while Kelsier doesn't get much of it, we ourselves are freaking out. (laughs) And Kelsier is absolutely fighting for a new reason to live, which is some of this understanding and the way that he could contribute and push against these boundaries of realms. Yeah. I mean... Mind, body, spirit is Plato. It's Plato. Yeah. yeah. It's the yeah, exactly. body. It's the three forms. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, I, I'd be curious to see the spiritual realm. Is there cognition there? Are they able to think and, and speak and feel and what we would consider to be make hum, human motions and thoughts and ideas and speech? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, does it does it prescribe a mind if that's the case does does it prescribe a mind to the spirit that more perfectly matches up with the true self as that opposed would be to my the, bet. the mind yeah that would okay. that would 100% be my bet is that it is a more true representation of who you are than what you think you are right especially if you if you start to think about these these sort of manifestations of these realms the physical realm is your actual appearance as it's perceived by other people the cognitive realm appears to be your understanding of yourself or that bearing basically repeated and so assumptively i think i'm with you that the spiritual realm would be your actual self so we take this to like the lord ruler generally a good dude generally fighting for the right things bad shit still of course but I mean, that's that's what he did in the physical realm. At his core, he was fighting to preserve reality and preserve society and people in general. So I'd be curious as to what he looked like in the in the spiritual realm. Yeah, I, I and his sort of gruff appearance in the cognitive realm it mm-hmm. makes me wonder: is the cognitive realm less about who you really are and more about how you're perceived mm-hmm. and what what people think of you? Yeah, because we know him to be like a thin, live, you know, man in white and black. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm, or what you what you most outwardly displayed for yourself. Right, right, absolutely. Present. All right, that's the term I was looking for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think that it gets into some fascinating stuff here as Lara starts to break those pictures down. All right, so we move into chapter two of part two here. And this is really Kelsier 
finally beginning to study Ruin's motives and writing and how he communicates with the world and how he interferes despite being trapped. And it's that he rides out on these pulses of preservation's power in different moments. And I, I think that that's fascinating. We also see that occasionally during these pulses and movements, we see Kelsier seeing what Hoyd the Drifter is up to in these different moments. We see him in the terrace dominance. I think I told you this weekend explicitly that one of the cool things here is that we find out that Hoyd was the one who was leading them away after many of them had been potentially killed by the Inquisitors and harvested, that he was Mm -hmm. a part of that movement and trying to preserve the society as much as possible, which, I mean, shows him as kind of a beneficial force. He's probably still trying to figure out ferrochemy or something like that, but... It's certainly a more complicated aspect to who Hoyd is and what his purpose is and what his motives are. He seems to be helpful in general. Yeah. Kind of a shit kicker when we interact with him, but he seems to be generally and genuinely trying to help the people. It's very much a conversation of to what end, you know, is kind of the question right now. You know, why are you helping out? Why are you helpful in to what end are you really trying to achieve? Right. Yeah. So, makes sense. And yeah, we, we kind of get this feeling for how Rune is able to interact. Kelsier is able to work it out that it's through the spikes, and that's why he seems to be pulling on different people. In particular, Marsh, and being able to interact with Marsh. He sees that Marsh survived, and he reflects a little bit on Marsh in the end of this and the way that things begin to work out with the well. In between the moments in which they defeated all of the people... And then slightly before they make their way down. So this is kind of in that section. What, what do you, what do you make of Kelsier's relationship specifically with Marsh and the way that that's painted here and his life in general? So this, this section, I think the biggest takeaway is the reflection on life and, and interpersonal relationships in general. Obviously Mm -hmm. Marsh is the one that's highlighted, but I'd assume that those, thoughts come through about most of the relationships that he's held dear and really solidifies. And it was textual before, but it's extra textual here. His lack of really strong familial bond with Marsh. Like they, Mm -hmm. they weren't super close. They weren't a traditional brother relationship or dynamic there there was a lot of tension all the time yeah i i totally agree with you i mean i think that this contextualizes a lot of different things right the the relationship with marsh marsh the relationship with vin the sort of anger that he has as as, at these people for putting ellen in charge and into power in these moments as well where he's Mm -hmm. he also it's worth pointing out at the end of the books, when we were reading through it and talking about it, we gave Kelsier a lot of credit for seeming to have potentially turned a corner on most of these people. However, it is very clear that he is almost just as staunchly a classist. At this point, it's kind of racism, like a racist against the oppressive class dick and doesn't see the potential for people to be different and just barely has an acceptable line for Ellen at all. He he says he's better than most of his kind. Mm-hmm. But there's a disdain there for sure. Almost regret for saving him. 
Yeah, but, that's the big one. Yeah, but backs up his decision with with the reasoning that he had given in the in the first place was that there it was for Vin. Mm-hmm. Vin loves him, right? Yeah, it's hmm. yeah, yeah. It's just it's wonky, but we do see the the attack that Ruin makes on Ellen in that he imitates the shadow of preservation and the ability to interact there being that this is sort of that attack. And he specifically waits for Vin to be in the room. So yeah, I I mean the, we've been in this story for a long time and we've been, we've been reading this for quite a bit. So it was one of those things where it's like you were keying into something and there's there's a level of hint that I'm comfortable with or of like teasing that I'm comfortable with. And that was one of those that I remember giving you just a little just a little salt and pepper on because I was I was reading this at the time when we had begun to record. And I remember like knowing this and being like, oh, and obviously, you know, the end of the story, and you know, there are kind of there are two spirits out there, two gods. But you don't really get this granularity as to who was who very clearly, I should say, until this point. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. There's so much. Yeah, ruin there? ruin taking control or taking the form of the spirit, the miss spirit was mm-hmm. particularly devious. Yeah, very devious. I'm. I mean, and it's it's deviousness that's so very particular and specific to Vin, but it also means that. Ruin is able to see what preservation is doing and what forms is taking and how it's showing itself to people in the world. Yeah. Which is an added layer of like understanding. Yeah. Right. Right. It understands what it's fighting against very intimately. Right. All right. Cool. So with that, let's get into chapter three here of well. Preservation begins spending more time around the well, and of course we know why at the end of this, but he's actually spending time with Kelsier for the first time in a while versus kind of popping in and out. But he's really degraded. He's looking even less human-like. His face has begun to dissolve and kind of disappear in parts and bits at this point. Um, it is it is interesting for me to try to conjure an image of a face that's half gone or a head that's half gone without it being like cleaved or, mm-hmm. or gory or anything. It's just essentially half of a skull bisected vertically and just kind of wisps of mist coming off of the side of it. Yeah. It's spectral. I mean, that's, I think the big thing that yeah. I imagine is that it's, it's almost ghost-like in the way that it fades away. And I think mist is the correct thing to ascribe to it. Obviously, because it's preservation. It's Laris. He's missed itself right. in a big way. I did, inside of our little chat here, send you a little photo of the depiction so you can check it out. But they, they get into mm. a big... What, what do you think? That's, that's about right, well, right? For, first and foremost, and this is the stupidest thing to say, but I imagine it being his other half. Hmm. In, in every time I'm trying to imagine it, it's like his left half is still there. Okay. But uh, it's dumb. Like, I don't know why I'm keying into that. This is so much more human than I, what I was imagining, especially with the, sure. with the clothing 
being depicted. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I imagined it more regal, frankly. Didn't imagine the long hair. I, I imagined him younger too. In, in sure, depiction, but that's pretty cool. This is the for everyone at home who's taking a peek or listening and can't take a peek. This is the Fuzz by Matthew Johnson artwork. It's fantastic stuff. So give it a check. Um, really well done. Y- yeah, I really enjoy it. I, I think it's a good depiction of Wait, kind of what that would really look like. Don't take that as criticism for my <laughs> my no. It's my just take <coughs> where your mind went with it. Yeah, so I I definitely get that. Cool. All right. So there's a lot that happens here, right? And this is mostly an explanation behind the power and where it's going to go, which is something that we've obviously talked about ad nauseum in inside of the Well of Ascension and this idea and the Hero of Ages with where the power went and why it was released. Ruin has successfully confused Vin, and there's no real way to like have a conversation with her in any capacity. Um, Laris tries to stop her in various ways from making progress against to make it to this point, but Ruin has already placed a lot of seeds that are going to be that he's going that he can't overcome. Um, Kelsier suggests that he could take the power instead, but Laris tells him that that wouldn't work in his current state; that he couldn't really hold it for a long time, and in any case, he doesn't have enough connection to preservation, which is fascinating in its own right. Yeah. Uh, makes me wonder where those powers came from to begin with. Kelsier has been referred to as heavily of ruin in the past, hasn't he? I think inside of this, he's, I think, ruin talks with him for a brief moment in spirit. Right. Yeah. But, but it makes me wonder where his misborn capability actually came from. If it was innate and he just had a harder time being snapped than most people or throwing my sketchy eyes at you again, because how dare you? It has to be preservation. The powers only can come from preservation. But preservation himself is saying that he's he doesn't have as much of a grip on him. Right. I, I would I would love to throw this at you right now. He is not as connected with him right now because he can't burn in spirit form. He can't burn the metal, so he's not invested anymore. Okay. Okay. That's that's not that's not a that's not a oh, that's that is the reality of the situation. He can't burn the metals. He tries to instinctively, but he doesn't have the physical capability of burning metals because he doesn't have his physical body to do so. Yes. But this conversation felt deeper than that. There is there are deeper layers. I'm just trying to make sure that you don't skip over I'm not, the, I'm not, the immediate I'm not rationale to... and reasoning for why, you know yeah. why he can't, right? It's I I can I can grasp the immediacy of the kind of thing where it's like you're more connected potentially with ruin than preservation is in general, even though his mantra is to survive, which is its own thing. But how he does that surviving is very different. Like the implications and the intent of surviving being through destruction is its own thing. Right. But I just have to clarify that he's not as connected with him anymore because he's lost that physical capability. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would be remiss if I didn't say it. Yeah, that's, that's fair. And I would, I would get many a comment. 
I don't have to see those. So no, I know that you don't have to see those. No skin off my dick. (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker. All right. (laughs) So uh, the, the two of them arrive at the pool here in well, and Kelsier suggests that Laris potentially stab Ellen to make her use the power to heal him. And Laris pulls out a dagger that he says he hasn't used in a long time and tries to urge himself to potentially to, and he can't. Kelsier then basically shoves him to do so, to reach out from the well and slash across his stomach, across Ellen's stomach, and uh, cutting him open. Vin is distraught, of course, but as we know, the way that the Well of Ascension goes, she releases the power anyway, being deceived by Ruin to do so, thinking that she's doing the right thing by pushing that button and the power rips through runes prison like a spear being thrown and tears it open and he escapes in that moment hmm i don't like this (laughs) really no i don't i i don't like i think it makes sense given the personality and the disposition that we have on preservation on laris Mm -hmm. but I don't like how much control Kelsier has over the situation. It it makes for some really interesting mechanics in this fleeting moment. Like obviously it changes when the interaction happens later at the end of the section or in the beginning of the next section. I can't remember, but it allows for Kelsier to really interact with the physical world using Laris as a conduit for that as a mm-hmm. as a as an intermediary i feel like it takes a ton of I, I i don't know it makes me really curious about the actual delineation between the realms sure. and and how separate they really are because because you can have an intermediary in general specifically through a god i mean that's worth warranting that's, here right? that's fair that's very fair I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I, again, am going to attempt to render any sort of review brain out of this as much as I possibly can. And I I think one of the things that we talk, that I've talked often about, and it's, you know, something that I, I think that I try to adhere to as much as possible is that, The intent of what someone is going for should be the most important thing when critically trying to intake something, right? Like, so what is Brandon going for in this moment? He's trying to relay that a god of whom is meant to preserve cannot slash through someone. And he portrays that in a way that is approachable and acceptable, right? I think. Does not mean that you have to necessarily like it, but I think understanding that first and foremost is good. Could anyone do any better with a lot of this shit? That's that's kind of like my net with Sanderson with a lot of this is like, man, this is a wild world. This is a wild universe that you've created. Some of it is very much for me and in my bloodstream and I love it. And some of it's like not for me and that's okay. But I, I'm coming to terms with this in live in live time reading the Lost Metal and everything else, so I I'm gonna I, I have to shut myself up now. So, but yeah, mm-hmm. I can understand your trepidation. I can understand some of that because it's it is it's a lot, and my primary concern with something like Secret History is the 
and it doesn't it's it's not that it's happened here but it's the potential to undermine existing stories with just sort of rationales or reasons you can drag in from other places right like telling a story straight i think is generally the best way to do it wrapping in other mechanics can be mechanics can be very interesting but i think that this is a particularly difficult story to tell that he wants to tell here and for the most part i think he does it he tells it it's true yeah 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 so i think we should move into chapter four this is very short of course this is a very short chapter laris gets vin's attention and has her feed ellen the last bead of lorassium that's on the ground there were two of them earlier hoyd ran away with one of them Ellen's soul lights up as he is invested with preservation's power and survives his wounds by burning pewter. Vin is obviously happy and Kelsier compliments Laris and then free to go takes off. This is so he he's given the Nuggy. Well, Ellen is, but yep. Kelsier is like there's an interaction where Laris gives him the uh, the ability to kind of act as him right or is that later that's later following the tendrils of preservation that's later okay yeah but he's just freed from the prison he's freed from the prison here yes yeah okay <clears throat> yeah yeah i just want more on the Lorassium. i know that's not this is not the place for that but it feels so very cool <laughs> and and we've dealt with god god medals before but this is mm-hmm. this feels very different in the way that it works in general compared to atm or whatever that red metal is that the spike was made from this is not a metal that can be just burned for a power it is well the power itself being given to somebody yeah specifically burned for powers which is interesting yeah right so what it makes me think about in this moment is the ars arcanum of era two and i i feel like it's all the same ars arcanum is that the case are they slightly different each one expands a little bit on some things and there are some slight differences yeah Okay, so I think it's probably Shadows of Self where it first shows up, but I know it exists in Bands of Morning as well, talking about mm-hmm. the alloys of the god metals and how they add additional powers and can be burned themselves. So what happens then? Like, How, how can this power be augmented or changed or added to or whatever as an alloy if a Mistborn were to burn them? Right. Yeah, it's a difficult prospect because of how different it is from from the abilities of all the other metals. Yeah, the alloying of this would be far more complicated, I would agree. I don't want to linger on that too much because there's not a whole lot more that we can say, if that makes sense. Not not only that I can say, but like there's there's nothing more than raw speculation. Right. On a bit of a time crunch. That is truly speculation. Yeah, we can continue. Yeah, but we go into part three spirit here kelsier is leaving his prison and goes to find his friends in luthadel he 
meets them at Keep Venture having a funeral, though, and this is kind of a very somber moment for him as he's realizing and comes to realize as he walks around and is bumping into people to have to experience their feelings that he understands kind of the severity of what has happened here. He internalizes and ruminates on the idea of him wanting to stop Ruin, <clears throat> but preservation and Laris appears and tells him that this is impossible to it's impossible to fight entropy and ruin is entropy, a universal constant. What'd you make of this plan to to help and to try to do his best from the spirit realm to assist? I mean it's certainly noble. Or not, not yeah. Sorry, not the spirit no. realm, the cognitive realm. My bad. Cognitive. But yeah, I, I yeah. know what you mean. It's it's definitely a noble thing. This section also I, I'd like to highlight gives more mechanics and more more interactions with people and and how he perceives them as sort of misty outlines. So he has to feel them and touch them in order to really properly be able to tell who they are. I feel like we I, I don't think we talked about it before, but it was mentioned before how metal and people glow in the same way. But I think that's highlighted here as well as though not super well explained like it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that was something that stuck out to me that we haven't talked about yet, actually. So I'll, I'll dig into that a little bit. Yeah, because there's the comment about the metal being the body of the God. But I feel like at the end of the bands of mourning, there is when, when Wayne or when wax is wielding the bands, wielding the sphere, he's able to see people in the same way that he sees the metal. So this Mm -hmm. backs that up and kind of gives a parallel to it. I'm sure I'm missing something, but that's true, right? Like that that's that's where I'm I'm correct he, in where I'm coming from. He has some of that purity of vision. I don't know to what degree I would say that it overlaps. Like it it does overlap, but I'm not sure to I'm not sure to what extent. Yeah. I'll just yeah, I'm not sure to what extent. Okay. That's fair. Mhm. But I that said, like we very clearly understand that part of the reason that he's seeing these different uh, flares right throughout this entire world is whenever someone burns Alamancy, they flare up brighter. And so he can see those and make those out from a distance. At the same time, everyone has a little bit of preservation in them. And so they appear as these sort of ghostly lights and blobs. And so when he bumps into them, that's when he's really able to see. It's like he's interacting with them cognitively in a small way. And so... I think that the big interaction that you're talking about is really between Wax with the Bands and the former, not the latter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just clarifying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What do you make of Kelsier's anger towards preservation that happens here for kind of the apathy that he can't fix any of this and, and sort of the bitterness? And when he like stares into him in that moment and feels his pain and his love for people and winds up you know, kind of sharing this really intimate exchange and hug of kind of understanding. What do you make of that revelatory moment for Kelsier and otherwise? I mean, there's such an obvious parallel to be drawn between wax and harmony. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like that one was fleshed out a lot more and explained 
a lot more Mm -hmm. regarding the sort of, I can only do so much and you're seeing the, like, you're going to have to trust me that what you're seeing is the best outcome. I can't get rid of negativity in general, (laughs) but I can do what I, like, I I can do my best. Mm -hmm. And what you're seeing, even though there's negatives here, is the best. Yeah. It it does feel like that. And I, I mean, the apathy of preservation is its own thing because acting in general is to fight against preserving because you're going to be deteriorating something when acting, right, is kind of his mentality and thought process. And also, I mean, it just feels like he can't fight against a force like Ruin because he is... He is in every person, and so he's missing a lot of his power, and, you know, he's split up everywhere and can't push against him in the same degree. So. Right. Versus Ruin is mostly unified, but obviously missing his body. Yeah. So, Kelsier in that moment also sees a vision of the people in the South. What the fuck? <laughs> if it weren't for us already kind of having this this sort of vague picture, I think that this would be a bigger reveal. We talked about it earlier, but I, I think that it does paint something in the future through the perspective of the sovereign that we see at the end which kind of gives us an interesting through line for where this the rest of the story could go right that's true from a date of publication standpoint mm-hmm. was this a big reveal like did this, this come was, out before no this Bands is after of Bands of Morning. yeah this the, came out the after Bands of Morning. yes yes so this came out after Bands actually Technically, I think it came out at the same time as Bands of Mourning, with the intent of it being read afterwards. So generally every reading guide says read this in post. So okay. it, it's a reveal for Kelsier, right? We know that the Southern Squadrons exist, but also, did we know that they existed at this point? Like, to what degree? We had some hints. I feel like it's been we mentioned a, a couple different times. Yeah, we, uh, we had a hint. Was it really just one? It was... I it might have been too about like life at the poles, which is not really a hint. And then there is also another and, vague and comment. The mention of other regions and other people. Yeah, they, there's like one and a half hints. I'll say. Okay, that I'm, didn't. I'm confident didn't, in one and a half. It didn't say that they were different in any way. It just seemed like there was another community of humans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Or that there was the potential for that. Right. So it's part one for the most part here. I'd be remiss if I at the very least didn't mention he is very sad about Docs and Clubs' death and takes that very personally and deeply. Mentions, says it, of course, in his loss of Tindwell and the way that that gave his friend darkness and is, is turning him down a path where he is likely not to be as helpful as necessary. So that leaves Kelsier to be the one to do the impossible. Yeah, um, that's a huge mantle to take up, man. From the dead to to try to change reality. Yeah, it it is a big mantle to take up. Does this line up with the death of preservation? Yes, it does. We're not there yet. Okay. <clears throat> but yeah, there's there's more story to be told. We're we're not there yet. We're at spirit. So this is post I, I like how this delineates the sections that we're in very clearly with these part titles, which is unusual for Sanderson at this point. True. With And you we know, got some Empire, perspective on that. At well Dragon Spirit. Yeah. yeah. Where he doesn't actually like break up the parts of his books. That's all that's all on the editors. So I wonder if yeah, that's true. Chapters too. for the most part. Yeah. 
well, chapters and parts is right. what he said. Like he just writes the book. He doesn't right. break it up. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's created for himself a system where he does so much of the idea work and then kind of lets other people make it be readable, fix it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is wholly unique from my understanding. So, I mean, and that explains why he's able to do as much as he does. So, I mean, good for him. Good on him. Yeah. But yeah. Yields something yields a very different product, which is also I, I think I mentioned to this to you offline. But part of the reason that I am currently in love with the Lost Metal um, or that I was willing to share with you for the first third or quarter was it's edited by the incredible editor of the first law series who edited every single one of those books. And she is just miraculous. And I can feel her structure and edit. Like I've never felt before because I can compare the two. I can compare the first law and this in my head. And I'm like, you actually, especially after the panel, it's like, you have a shocking amount of power (laughs) over the way that this sounds and works. So yeah. Author voice is still very real, but you can, you can really kind of feel the fingers of an editor, which I had not, not previously been able to work out so closely as in this one. Mm -hmm. Excited to read it. Yeah. So regardless, let's go into chapter two here. Kelsier follows the tendril preservation out of the city and to Lake Luthadel. The lake rises like an island above the mists and feels more solid as he's running across it, which is a fascinating change from where he's at. There are these strangely substantial plants emitting from the mist on the stony surface as well, which is interesting. There's there's some different life on this side. What do um, they drink? What do you think? What do they drink? That's soul something he asks, yeah. right? Like, he's yeah. Like, how yeah. are they watered? Right. Right. Where do they get the water? Where are they fueled from? <laughs> he continues on in preservation. Central eventually goes away. No big deal. He happens upon a campfire with two people having no weapon. He decides just to walk up and talk with them. Of course, it's very, very casual, but they both recognize him and wonder how he's there to begin with. There's some questioning of like, sacredity with the cognitive shadow that Ajah eventually brings up. He's like, you're not following the path to being a cognitive shadow and kind of like freaking out about a lot of those different components. But we discover themselves as Chris and Naj. Naj being a master map maker and Chris being a studier of the the magic arts in, in this moment. And I guess I have to ask at this point, what do you think of these two new characters and where they sit? They feel somewhere... I, I don't know what to make of them because hmm. the way they speak makes it feel like they are also shards, hmm. but simultaneously like they're in, in awe that he spoke with one of the shards. They are not shards. Right. At all. That, that, yep. that feels pretty clear, but they do make commentary when they're talking about sort of the breakdown of how the 16 exist Mm -hmm. they're very clearly in the know they're existing on the cognitive realm they are when when hoyd comes up they're astonished and kind of troubled (laughs) by the fact that he's interacting in the way that he is i i'd assume that they're on the same level as hoyd is based on what we've seen we know that they're not 
glowing in the same way that people in the body realm do the physical realm, but it, it seems to be an exception. Like they don't, he doesn't perceive them. Kelsier does, doesn't perceive them in a way that's similar to anybody else. And maybe that just, maybe I missed a comparison to Hoyd. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a lot to talk about here for sure. And I'm glad that you went through that. There's, there's some other components that I want to talk about with like the fire and the stick in the interaction. And he's finally able to like make things and hold things in his hands, which is fascinating. By the end of this, he's able to kind of like have an understanding and he can feel warmth, which is interesting. It's like on the cognitive realm, there's warmth in addition to these plants and other things like that that he hasn't got to explore because he's been trapped in the well. But before we go there, Chris, I'll start with Naj. Naj is an exquisite map maker and is the author of all of the maps that you've seen in the books. He is the guy putting mm. together the maps. And Chris studying the magic is the author of the Ars Arcanum and in turn the ah. pages between Arcanum Unbounded as she specifies and this is a very distant connection and you you could have made it at this point so I don't feel like I'm ruining anything but she says in the beginning of these sections which I said you could listen to I didn't I didn't put those off guard is that she refers to her home as Taldane, and so you can draw the connection. Her name's Chris. Taldane is one of the homes of White Sand, which is a it was his first novel, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to talk about that part, but she is from that planet and has been writing these Ars Arcanums, studying the worlds of all of these different planes. And so she is the one who's been bouncing between worlds, writing these. I remember mentioning to you that there's a perspective on all of these, and this is it's her perspective. All right. Didn't pick that up, but that's super cool. Yeah. That's why I was like, it's time. I can finally give it up, which is cool. I mean, it's it's a great, it's a wonderful revelation to be like, okay, we have the guy who's drawing all of our maps. This, these aren't just, some of them are official, like, in-world maps. It says, like, I, I think in Era 2, it's like the official city map of uh, Elendel. And so that's likely not drawn by Naj, but Naj did draw the other maps that are in the beginning of the first era in theory. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Very cool little extraneous detail, but they, they talk about a lot of things, right? We, we, we have the cognitive fire. You mentioned the 16 shards. There's the, I, in early mention of Andal Nauseam. I don't know if it's the first or not for Mistborn. I feel like there's one other one. I know that I broke down and said it once. I definitely said it at the live show. Andal Nauseam and kind of the, the idea of this sort of god, right? And the, the 16 shards around it. I, I we just gotta, we got, I gotta give you a second to get on a soapbox here and, and pause it about this. <sighs> oh man, <laughs> there's so I mean, much, you don't, but. Yeah. So little that I can like grab onto and really run with, with any confidence. Right. My dogs are barking outside. I can't hear it. Okay, cool. But it, it feels like there's really not that, that much that I can really grab onto and, and be solid about going with, but there's so much ethereal information that's floating around. That's hard to like draw connections with. Like the fire is obviously something that's pointed out to and highlighted quite a bit, like right upon Kelsier coming up to this campfire and throughout throughout it, 
throughout the entire scene. It doesn't seem to have a fuel source. It's just there. I don't know if it's conjured. I don't know if it's just imagined and brought into being, but it feels somehow importantly mystical. The fire? Yeah. Okay. These characters solidify some of the obviously held notions of the divine or extraordinary characters that we've seen so far in that they're not all-knowing. They are flawed. They are human, but they're still somehow more to a certain extent. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where to run with it. Do you have any, you don't have any thoughts on like the 16 shards and the shattering? Well, there's that. Come on, man. Where are you going with that shit? Like there's one, one daddy God that got killed by his babies (laughs) and they broke it up into into babies, 16 pieces. Each God holds a fraction. This world seems unique in that there's two shards actively influencing it and maybe three now technically uh yeah the fact that they can be combined and can be wielded simultaneously makes me wonder if we'll see a god fight going forward and the race for a god to re solidify all of the shards into a single single power and says it's got to jump he's twice as far as any of them so i i'm i'm hoping to Root for your boy Sazed in <laughs> defeating all of the other gods. Our philosopher king god Sazed. And stealing all their powers. But he's not he's not like maliciously after them, you know? And I'm not I'm not saying I I mean that not yet from an intent perspective. Sure. But what part of him would chase power? You know what I mean? Like harmony is seeing destruction. Yeah, co-opting, See, yeah, I guess, seeing, like leveling it out. Seeing flaws and feeling like he can do better if he yeah. were to have okay. influence. I, I don't it. think it's going to be it. malice. I don't think it's going to be power grabbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I think it's going to be a a drive for making something better. Sure, sure. Okay. I do want to bring up here the kind of end of this chapter. Chris had originally arrived hoping to help, but with knowledge that Hoyd's there and that the pits of Hathson have been destroyed, she's unable to really make it easily over to the physical realm, and so she doesn't feel like she can actually make it through to help like she had originally intended here. And she also mentions that the Irie won't help her. Of course, as mentioned, when they learn about Hoyd's visit, they immediately pack up to leave. They're like, ah, fuck, we gotta go. For, for a number of reasons, in addition to them just seeing the general degradation of the planet, like I'm not trying to equate it directly to Hoyt, it's just the the sort of culmination of a couple of things in their mind lead them to believe that they need to be they need to get out of here. So as they leave and pack up, including the fire, this cognitive fire that they sort of mash up and carry on their backs, Naj turns back in the last moment after having some pretty aggressive confrontations between the two of them where they don't really agree, Naj wants to help, like, truly in his deepest soul, and he gives Kelsier his knife and tells him where the Irie are. Does he... I thought Kelsier pickpocketed him. He did, but he gave it back. It wasn't the knife, though. The knife wasn't pickpocketed. Or he tried to pickpocket him. 
Naj turns back and gives him the knife. And so he okay. has something in the cognitive realm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The fire, just thinking about it more, makes me think that this is the cognitive representation of the same metal that the Southern Scadrians use to stay warm. Sure. I can't remember what metal it is off the top of my head, but for some reason I think it's pewter, but I'm not hundred percent on that. Okay. There's, there's a lot more that I wanted to say. Brass. It's brass, but brass. Yeah. Okay. Oh, the Irie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's spelled and pronounced in different ways. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, that was confusing in the ire. audio. Yeah. It's spelled ire, but also in the audiobook, it is mentioned when he's talking with preservation later that preservation pronounces it ire, but Chris and Nosh pronounce it Isri, mm-hmm. but that's not how it was narrated in the past. Like there, there was a disconnect there. I felt like sure. And maybe it's me not picking up things, but I think it's just a language difference. I, I think it's a pronunciation in language differential. Yeah. But, um, but it wasn't reflected when Chris and Nosh were speaking like Michael Kramer pronounced them identically, but mentioned true. that there was a difference in pronunciation. Yes. I would argue, I would hazard a bet that they probably tried it the other way first, and then it didn't sound right, and so people got confused, and they probably ironed it out to just pronounce it consistently. Okay. Often with language, things like that, you'll, you'll see if there's any desync in an audiobook from the physical text, it's usually around when you have characters disagreeing or having slightly different context in the way that they say things, if it's not an aggressive accent difference, which is like what happens in bands of mourning, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you textually have that explained very clearly and laid out, but I there. Yeah. Yep. Can't I? Yeah, that's fine. It's actually not that big of a deal, but like the name is Irie. But in other languages, it would be pronounced differently, naturally. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Just the fact yeah. that it was highlighted made me, made it stick out to me. Sure. Sure. Cool. All right. So the final chapter of the week to talk about here is the conversation that Kelsier has uh, with preservation about the ivory. He explains that they're from another land, another world, who have maybe died but haven't. And so there's some curiosity here. They built a city that is in a place between the worlds. There's a lot of like little kind of connective tissue here that I feel like I should just stop and let you talk about. Well, there's a very, very clear parallel here that I am trying to reckon with. And there's not enough connective tissue to really make a solid connection to but of the oh what's the name of the people in elantris elantrians or the or the shayod the The shayod is the disease but it feels similar to that in that yeah it, it comes upon death or what is perceived as death and and feels sort of beyond the physical realm to a certain extent the like, show turns them into a yeah in a laundry yeah right yeah. but like right 
are these the same kind of entities? Are these the same kind of beings as the Sheod brings on? Or is it entirely separate? Like, we have precedence for a people that live in this way, is I guess where I'm mm-hmm. getting at. And understanding yeah. that there are multiple magic <clears throat> systems and multiple spiritual systems, maybe, kind of. These terms are difficult to parse because they are cap like capital S spiritual is not the same as what I'm trying to go for. Right. But these mechanics welcome, feel similar. Welcome to my last eight months of trying to discuss this shit with you in lower cases and upper cases. <laughs> and then sometimes weaving in upper cases when you think they're lower cases, which has been fun for me and yep. for listeners along the line when I've mentioned things offhandedly. Yeah. Yeah. The -hmm. pointed language is always a very fun part for me of this podcast. And I hope that our listeners enjoy when I get to wheedle in bits where they recognize something, but you might not. I'd be curious what the second reading experience is like Mm -hmm. after finishing the entirety of the Cosmere. Yeah. Or, or being up to date with the Cosmere. Tell you what, it's an experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's context there, but, I, it's interesting that you keyed into that. I think that's something to maybe look forward to to try to parse out, right? Because obviously, by the end of this, it seems that we're going there. We're going to go to the Irie. Yes, it does. Yeah. So, Preservation gazes into Kelsier's eyes, giving him a vision of godhood and the future. He is then given a vision of the the connection to ruin and how much stronger that is between the two here. This is where that is really textualized to some degree because of that. And that there is no possible future in which it is Kelsier who does defeat Ruin, but he does sense this chance, this possibility that Vin could win if Kelsier chases this lead out west, past the lake. Right. (laughs) Past the lake to the ocean, which is a (laughs) mind-bogglingly far off land, apparently. Mm-hmm. But not mind-bogglingly far enough that it's not understood by Kelsier. So, like, we know the ocean exists. I'd be mm-hmm. curious what... And that hasn't been mentioned before from the perspective of somebody that we've been read or that, that we've been reading. But ostensibly, it seems that there is knowledge of these far-off realms right am i yes am i picking too deep into this i don't know i don't think you're picking too deep into it i think you're picking exactly what he wants you to like lean into to talk about at this point so Mm -hmm. yeah or to think about at the very least so yeah it's a giant shoulder shrug of what's going to happen next kind of is what, what we're left with you know, preservation insists that the Irie won't help, that they're stuck in their ways, that they're this people that is not there to assist. They're there to preserve themselves and work on themselves and do that. But Kelsier, of course, as the thief master lord that he is, doesn't plan on asking. Yeah. Yeah, he plans on going on stealing, inserting himself into the situation. <laughs> mm hmm. Which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the end of the chapter, but I want to leave this open. Any Anything else? Anything else that you wanted to say? Anything else you have? 
Well, Kelsier has this power. Mm-hmm. And like he's been imbued with the ability to interact with the cognitive realm in the same limited way that I, I can't tell if it's imbued upon him or if it's given to him in place of preservation. Is there clarity there? Like is, is preservation still able to do the same thing he was able to do or is, has he given that up to Kelsier? I think he's still able to do the same things. He's just giving some segment of power to him to allow for him to extend himself. I, d- I don't think it's that big of a deal, if that makes sense. Okay. It's not that big of a sacrifice. There is one thing that I textually mentioned much earlier, but didn't talk about it where it's actually textually done, which is in this chapter, chapter three, where Kelsier tries to access Alamancy for the first time with metal in his stomach, um, with the bolt that he stole from the chair and is unable to. So mm-hmm. there's that. I also forgot to mention that. But yeah, which I mean, what would he do with Alamancy here? I mean, propel himself faster. I mean, he could burn, he could run, he could do, you know, all kinds of things. I'm not saying that there's anything immediately. He's just testing the waters to some degree. So I guess he has this power, but he doesn't have the ability to be everywhere at once, which Mm -hmm. would have been really convenient, I think. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, PJ, I think that ends that part of the episode. But I have to real quickly go into PJ's predictions. PJ's previous predictions. Fuck. Because you made this motherfucking call in Alloy of Law. You asked, I asked, is anyone still alive? Right? You said, obviously, stays in still alive. I drank for that immediately you said i don't think anyone else could still be alive depending on the conjurer it could be same miswraith and same conjurer when spiked i think you didn't you drink, for, drink that for that one i think you should drink for that one ah fuck i think i think you should because you clarified the third too much. episode i was hedging yeah, too hedging, much at that. we're hedging way too much but your specific language around the third point of that you said kelsier is still around and I fucking hate you for that because Kelsier <laughs> is so fucking dead in the physical realm. Um, but he's still you around. You, you couldn't make that fucking call. God damn it. <laughs> I remember wanting to like bite my lip and like die, just like just swallow me. myself whole. Yeah. Ah, yep. cheers. Cheers. So yeah, good, good work. Good work. I just had to finally pay that off because this is this is that week technically the sovereign is as close to confirmation as we get up until this point but this is truly confirming that at the very least there's some other things that are holdovers with the sovereign there's still question of whether or not it's actually kelsier incarnate or right yes yeah which is why i'm or what have you letting that be right it's it's still to be determined a little bit so I had to pay that one off, though. Finally, it's been sitting there since we started Alloy of Law like 12, mm-hmm. 14 weeks ago. So, yeah. Cool. All right. With that, PJ, next week, we finish Secret History, wrapping this all up in a nice tight bow. And then after that, we're going to Lost Metal. It's yeah, the gameplay. I'm, I'm A, super excited to start on Secret History. It's back half. Second of all, I've got this really nice signed copy of Alloy of or of Lost Metal that I can't open yet. And I'm very excited for you to give me the go ahead 
you have alluded to the idea that there might be some short stories that I might have to read. I don't know if that will be the case or not, but as we discussed in the Aloe of Law release party, or as, as Brandon discussed, this is the book where he took the gloves off and decided, hey, fuck it. We're just going to let it all bleed into each other. All hang out. Yeah, it's basically gonna let what it he all said. hang out. Yeah. Yeah. So specifically I, gloves I off is what he said. He did say gloves off. I think my conclusion is that I'm not going to have you read it right now. Originally, I was thinking that you should. I think I am. Which which story is it? Call it specifically call it a personal curiosity. The Emperor's Soul. Call it a personal curiosity. But I think that I'm more curious as to your more raw reaction to the story without that perspective. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So because you've been more contained versus someone who has free reign or a reading order or anything else, I think it is more interesting to kind of see from your perspective this story through a Mistborn almost exclusive lens versus my kind of full Cosmere lens that I'm going to put in the review and talk about there. So I think I think that'll be a fun kind of side-by-side, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, it does. And so I don't, I, I think I've settled that I don't want to ruin that. Okay. I'd be really curious, like, if we were to reach out to Brandon, mm-hmm. what his recommendation would be. Do you have any speculation on what, what he would say about, like, order of reading and i think he'd be pretty close to publishing order i mean i I think with the exception of um kind of what he recommended at the at when he was asked he was asked this question at the q a that you were at right what's your recommended starting point if the gloves are coming off he's like well if you trust me stormlight like if if you can give it 200 pages and believe in me stormlight if not start with mistborn and then go another direction so if it were me understanding what brandon means there i would assume he would suggest mistborn Arrow one, and then Stormlight, and then Arrow two, and then all the other shit, and then Lost Metal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. The other thing that we haven't talked about that he revealed or discussed at this at this meeting was kind of a breakdown of the trilogy sort of vibe that he was going for to begin with oh yeah you wanted to bring this up yep yep, yep. do it do it all right well so, okay so i think i think it's good i think it's worthwhile right here yeah, at the end. It's, it's worthwhile we have been operating under the assumption that alloy of law was entirely separate and then it was a trilogy after that and by entirely separate i mean like wasn't which is what he said multiple times yeah right. he said it but multiple that, times that seems to not be the case anymore and Alloy of Law and Lost Metal are kind of intertwined and paired and Shadows of Self and Bands of Mourning are kind of entwined and paired. So it is a, with the breakups being, hmm? Tetralogy? Tetralogy. Tetralogy. Okay. Yeah. I don't like that term as much, but I, yeah, it doesn't matter what I think. (laughs) But it seems like yeah, they're they're much more entwined than he was originally intending for them to be. Right. 
Yes, and I will say no more. But I I do generally agree with that idea. It's interesting. It kind of makes sense to me. The middle two books were basically written as a pair. You know, Bands of Morden was technically finished before Shadows of Self was. And then you've got two outside books, and those outside books have a lot of connecting meat and tendrils between the two with character building moments in the middle. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a cool that was a cool little thing. There's a lot of cool little things that we can kind of pepper in here and there from that occasion. But with that, this is the end of the episode. So that's where we're gonna leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Andrew and Tim and Hoyt for making us <laughs> making our show <laughs> making our show exist and keeping the lights on. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, websites, social media accounts, all in one very convenient location in the show notes. Hoyd, even though you led to the shattering of Andal Nasium and everything else, I, I just want to, like PJ said, give you a quick thank you because otherwise, like, you know, what would you, what would we do without you? I don't know your contribution or anything like that. PJ doesn't know your contribution. Not no one, no one does except for maybe Brandon, but. We know you were there. For that, we thank you, I guess. Cool. Thank you and fuck <laughs> you. Thank you and fuck you. With that, while Twitter is still live and breathing, you can find us Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, provided all of the social media sites survive as long as this show does. <laughs> you can email us directly at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. I don't think Google's going under anytime soon, so feel free. If you have any feedback, questions, or things that you might want us to discuss, we're always open to it. Currently, you can find our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can follow the link, like PJ mentioned, in the show notes. If you do not leave a five-star review, Aaron from HowlerPod is going to come after you. Those That's... Those are the terms of her. It's a entire real contract. fucking threat. Like she yeah. doesn't hold punches. She will make you feel really, really bad. And like Ben will come too. He's just there. so you know. Yeah, he's there. Ben is there. Is Ben the mastermind? I don't think so. I think Aaron's the mastermind. <laughs> Ben's the mastermind. Aaron's the muscle. Let's be real. Okay. I can yeah. get beyond that. Be terrified of that muscle, though. <laughs> All right, cool. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.